Welcome to the Spectrum Lounge Podcast, where we discuss creators of color disrupting the game in TV, film, and pop culture. I am your host, Rebecca Theodore Vachon, and on this episode, we speak with screenwriter Ihoma Ifordere to discuss episode eight of the HBO series Lovecraft Country. Take a listen. Hello, Ihoma. Welcome to the Spectrum Lounge. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We had some tech difficulty, but thank you so much for being so patient while we figured it out. Don't I was worry. like, it's a jingle bell <laughs> <laughs> they, they were trying to curse this podcast, but I'm like, I'm going to get it done, damn it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so happy you're, you're, you're um, on here. Um, episode eight of Lovecraft Country will be airing this Sunday. Um, episode eight, and uh, the episode is titled Jigga Bobo. Um, now, mm. here's the thing. Watching Lovecraft Country, I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, we know from episode three, um, there was a certain cameo um, mm. where we were introduced to the character of Emmett Till, although we didn't know it was Emmett Till. I mean, you had a lot of history aficionados who had figured it out first. Um, in episode three, they referred to him as Bobo, which was mm. a, a nickname of Emmett Till. So we kind of knew from the minute I saw that, I was like, OK, I know how Misha works. I know how the writers in this room work. That is not a gratuitous cameo um so can you tell us like on your end in the writer's room um sort of like this idea of of bringing Emmett Till into a a real life historical person into this fictionalized world of 1955 what was what were some of the discussions and and as far as like the story arc of how you're going to bring that um into Lovecraft Country I mean it it was a perfect alignment to a certain extent. Um, it just so happens that our show was 1955, um, mm-hmm. Chicago, and that's where Emmett was from. Um, so we just thought it was a great opportunity to humanize him and to show who he was, you know, prior to his his murder. You know, typically when we think of Emmett Till, we think of his body, we think of his mom, we think of, of the outrage, um, mm-hmm. we think of, you know, the the murderers getting off scot-free, but we never really think about who he was as a kid um, mm-hmm. before this tragedy. So we wanted to honor him in that kind of way, in a way to humanize him. And sh- and, and when, when you see him as a real person and then this thing happens, I think it takes a totally different visceral effect versus if we just, you know, just went without knowing who he was or tried to create who he was to a certain extent. Right, right. Because in that scene, um, it was a house party that Letty was having, sort of like a housewarming party. And Emmett and Diana, uh, they were friends. There was a group of friends and they were playing with a Ouija board up in the attic. Um, And I think it was, uh, I think it was Emmett's turn. And he asked, am I going to have a good time uh, on my on my summer vacation? And the Ouija board told him no. And I'm telling you, every time I see that scene, mm. I just get chills down my back because it was just like he yeah. had no idea. I mean, like just to, you know, and um, but I mean, with this episode, what was so fascinating to me was, number one, the the choice of music that was used. Right. It was Cruel Summer because I was like, wait a minute, what mm-hmm. am I? Is this Lovecraft Country? I was like, I thought maybe my computer had skipped. But then I always remember that Lovecraft Country, one of the things that I love about the show is that they use like modern music 
in this period piece. Um, and I, I felt like it was appropriate. Mm-hmm. I felt like, I mean, maybe people, some people may have different opinions, but um, just that opening scene with that funeral and just seeing all the people that were outside online mm-hmm. to, to view the body because it happened, what? It, um, he was murdered August 28th, I believe. Yeah, August yeah. 28th. Um, and then to just see like, I think there was a, a woman who walked outside. I think she had just viewed the body and like she threw up, like she vomited. Yes. And it was just sort of like, wow. Okay. So I was like, okay, so we're about to get into some stuff here. Um, but I did want to talk to you about, because I, every episode that I love about, every episode of Lovecraft Country kind of centers a certain character on the show. And so this is what you would call, I guess, a decentric episode or a Diana-centric episode. Um, and I think the thing that just chilled me besides the supernatural aspects of this, of this, of this episode, it was really watching it and just kind of seeing this young black girl who's suffered so much. She's already lost her father. Um, her mother, Hippolyta, we, we understand it's been a week. Um, when, and then we, uh, that's Mm -hmm. when she's going to the funeral alone. And so it's, it's, it's tick, it's, uh, uh, Letty, it's Ruby. It's kind of like this community kind of coming together to try to, you know, to take care of her while, you know, Hippolyta is disappeared. But the thing that just really made me so, I guess, disturbed or just was so triggering about watching this episode was seeing how it felt like she was so naked in the world. Like without her mother mm. having the covering of her mother and the covering of her father, and it, I just thought about like so many young black girls um, today back then um, that 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 didn't have that covering. Um, can you tell us a little bit about kind of crafting that story as far as as Diana's journey in in that episode? It's really interesting because. Um, a very early, early version of the episode, you know, Hippolyta was there um, and it was kind of, she was still on her own journey, Diana was, but she still had her mom. She was still had, um, you know, her community around her. And it wasn't until, you know, episode seven, you know, and Shannon, you know, blurted out that what if Hippo doesn't come back, you know? And then that kind of like just reshook, like it shook episode eight and just, we had to like, because Misha loved the idea of that. Um, right. You know, what if Hippolyta continues her journey of choosing herself and expanding herself? Um, and what does that do to D in this world? Um, mm. So it, it kind of made her, her journey much more singular and really focused. Because I think a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, most of the times when we think of race, brutality, and trauma is usually focused on adults. A lot of times we don't focus on what children experience. So this was our way mm-hmm. to kind of like change the lens and the perspective and move through um, a child's eyes during this time. And what do they experience and how how does it affect them? Because that trauma will live within them and they will become adults with that same trauma. So it starts at, when they're kids. So um, it was very important for us to highlight and showcase um, how race affects our little ones. Mm-hmm. Um, cause the thing that I found so interesting is while those, those adults in her life were there just in that opening scene, they were, they were talking about D, but they didn't actually talk to her. I thought that was very interesting. You know, like it, it was sort of like this group where mm-hmm. Ruby and, and Letty and Montrose and Tick, they were like, well, what about Diana? Should we tell? But it's like, 
but and, and you can see like the trauma and the and the uh the the sorrow coming off of diana but it was like there was i didn't at least to me there really wasn't any interaction with diana like how are you feeling are you okay and throughout the episode you kind of see that the these very adults that are supposed to protect her are kind of going off in their own different directions taking mm-hmm. care of their problems and then it's sort of like okay diana's missing but it's like oh oh well you know what i mean I, i'm sure she'll show up and it was just it was so mm-hmm. frustrating to see that but i think that's one of the 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 things that i love about lovecraft as well we love these characters they're also very flawed and a lot of them have their own yes blind spots so to speak you know what i mean and it was just sort of like okay this girl is missing and um the the scene that really shook me was when diana decides to go off on her own and then those cops show up so she's in the alley and then that's when the two Mm -hmm. cops sort of surround her and they put that spell on her i i actually had to put i actually put that on pause because i was i was so triggered by that scene because i was like where is everybody Mm. where are the adults to protect her um it was terrifying that was such a terrifying scene yeah um yeah um but the other storyline that i want to talk to you about too because we'll we'll come back to diana is um Ruby <laughs> was one actually one of my favorite characters on the show. Um it's this this reintroduction nice of Ruby yeah of this of of the interaction between Ruby and William. And I wanted to get your take on it because I mean different people have written, you know, um their take on on of Ruby and and William in different episodes. Um but for me it's always like I we know that William is Christina but at the mm-hmm. same time, I do feel that the interaction, at least when Christina is William, it feels like the interaction between William and Ruby is much, there's almost like a tenderness to it, like a sweetness mm. to it. Whereas the interaction between Ruby and Christina can be very adversarial, even though they're the same person technically. And I just wanted to ask as far as writing this episode, was that something that you were thinking about or what what's your take on that whole dynamic with Ruby with these two characters? That's a really interesting that you um that you say that. I cause it's true. William is definitely much more gentler with, with Ruby than Christina. Christina is like, just be a bad bitch and <laughs> just do yes. what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, William is, is is much more softer and like, you know, gradually bringing her into this magical world. Um, I don't know. I think that's really interesting. I wonder, you know, as you're, as I'm thinking about it, um, this, this idea of when you switch bodies, like you take on that person's essence to a certain extent. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that very well plays into it as well because their essence is still there. That's part of what's part of the, the, the elixir is that is their mm-hmm. essence. So I'm pretty sure um, that gentler side is William. And also too, I feel like Christina, you know, Christina's very honest in everything that she says. So whatever she says, mm-hmm. she's she's speaking the truth. It's not just, uh, you know, games to her. Like she's very honest. So um, it would be interesting to see or to see people's reaction of how Christina and Ruby's relationship blossoms from this episode on 
Right. Um, so we need to talk about this sex scene. Um, <laughs> between <laughs> William and, and Ruby. I was like, when I talked to Ehoba, I have to ask, because I was just sitting there like, oh my God, I think Black Twitter is going to explode on Sunday because I don't think they're ready for this. <laughs> I thought, I was like, episode five with the... With the shoe was already like, you know what I mean? Mind bending. But that sex scene. Can you talk to us about kind of working on that scene and where you on set when they shot it or, you know, the discussions that you had with the with the performers for that love scene? I was not on set um, that week when they shot that. I was on set the prior. I was on set mostly with Diana. Um, But... Mm. I was I would say um you know what that scene is supposed to represent is um Ruby completely embracing herself like she can't hide behind Hittery anymore um mm-hmm. it's 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 her being reborn it's a rebirth of her a transformation of her um a deeper on a deeper level than what we saw in 5 um and I think given the the gravitas of this episode with Emmett Till, you know, you want to hide, you want to run away. And she's being forced to, um, to face that to a certain extent. Um, that scene is crazy. <laughs> I didn't know how they was going <laughs> to yes. shoot it. Um, even when we came right. over there, I was just like, because before we had already like laid down some groundwork. So we knew like, you know, they were, we were going to have this transformation scene, but we had mm-hmm. not kind of, come up with how the transformations actually look and work. So that came right. on the tail end. So <laughs> when when we decided on the gore of it, you know, the sex scene was already in place. So I was even, when I was writing, I was like, how is this going to look? Like, <laughs> you know, like, because I wrote it so like, you know, soft and intimate and like, just breaking mm-hmm. of Ruby and like, you know, um, because as she's transforming, she wants to, she wants to stop having sex with William, but he's mm-hmm. like, he's like forcing her to face herself and to face her transformation. Um, so yeah, it's insane how, how it came It out. is, it is. Cause I, I realized, cause I noticed that, cause I remember the first time when they had sex in episode four, they played. Um, I put a spell on you, right? So that was the Marilyn Manson version. Mm-hmm. I think for this uh, one, they play they play the same song, but it's a different version. I don't think it's the Nina Simone version. I'll have to look to see which one. But this one was definitely this version of "I Put a Spell on You." Was it was softer? Like it, like I, I it was hard to explain to my friend. I was like, because he had screened the episode too, and I was like, there was like a a grotesqueness, but it was also erotic. But it was also beautiful at the same time. Yeah. Like I, I had, I had never seen anything like that before because it was just like, okay, there's, there's a lot going on here. But it, it was, it, there's like the an emotional truth, like you said about Ruby, really coming to face herself. And I'm wondering, I mean, this is just me. Um, I'm wondering if part of her being unmade, right, and and reverting back to Ruby, um, could be because that she actually has feelings for William because I noticed that. Cause the other thing that I noticed too, is that I was wondering if during this, the sex scene and this transformation going on from, you know, Ruby going from a white woman go- turning back to Ruby, I was wondering if William was going to revert back to Christina, but, but she did it. 
So I thought that was very interesting. Like 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 the power dynamics. Is was there an intent with that or or when you were writing? Um or making those decisions of, of, of who was going to turn and who wasn't? I think it was mainly to focus on Ruby and her mm-hmm. transformation and her um, just coming to grips with herself and um, just the horror that she has, she just witnessed with, with Emmett Till, you know, because she actually saw the body. So it was just a, um, just a shedding of herself, like, Mm-hmm. Just this idea of, you know, when you witness something like that, right, or you experience something like that, it's just this idea of like, you just, you just, you just, when you're, it's just like, it's not that you don't want to be black. It's just like I just want to rest. I just need mm-hmm. to rest from from the horrors of being in black skin. Like I just right. need a reprieve. I just need to escape. Um, and, and this idea of William being like, no, you need to face yourself. You need to face all of it. Um, Mm -hmm. so the, the beauty of it is, is, you know, as women, you know, you, when you find different parts of yourself that you try to hide or not try to face. And when it comes, comes up and you face it and it's not as bad as you thought it was and you're, and you're stronger, you're stronger Mm -hmm. for it. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I ramble and, a lot. So I hope that was- no, that's okay. Oh no, that's fine. Um, because that, what was interesting was like, because like you go from that scene with like, and that's sort of like that dynamic between William and Christina. Like you have like this love scene. I'm I'm gonna call it a love scene. That's just for me. Mm-hmm. And then to go back yeah. the, the next scene where Ruby now is talking to Christina, right? And then the the vibe is totally different. You're like, okay, what what just happened here? Um, and then it was something that Ruby said that really stuck with me where she said, um, that the reason that she took the potion, um, you know, to become Hillary, to become the white woman is that she says, um, you know, today of all days, I didn't want to be a black woman, you know, fucking a white man, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I was like, damn. And I feel like there's some, there's certain unsaid truths, right? Certain things that maybe we feel like it's, it's politically incorrect, to talk about because it, it might yeah. be, it might be seen as rude, but I do feel like that conversation with them, while there's the supernatural aspect, there is this fundamental truth of, of being in a, in an interracial relationship, particularly now. I mean, always, but I mean, this mm-hmm. year specifically with everything that's been going on, what is it like to be in an interracial relationship? Whether it's a black man with a white woman or, or in this specific case, a black woman with a white man, what kind of conversations are you having? Like, I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, yes, I've dated, you know, interracially in the past, but it's never been like a serious relationship enough to like, you know, we're married or we've been together four to five years. And Mm -hmm. it's like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Like, how do you navigate those, those difficulties? Like I, 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 do you, or have you ever um, experienced being in an interracial relationship or having friends who may, who might be in interracial relationships with white men? Like what kind of conversations have, have you had or, or, or what have you um, noticed or, or just kind of observed when it comes to that? I personally have not been in an interracial relationship. Um, so I can't speak to that, mm-hmm. but I do have friends who are and have been. 
And I've heard a variety of things. I've heard that they don't talk about it, which is very mm. odd to me and strange that you can't, talk, wow. that they don't talk about race. Um, mm-hmm. um, I've had friends who've had drag out arguments with their their significant other where mm-hmm. they deny race. And <laughs> so they argue back and forth about the institutions of race. So I think... Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's both ends are very interesting. I, mm. <laughs> yeah, I just think both ends are very interesting. And I think when you are in an interracial relationship, I think race is a very important topic that needs to be discussed. Um, so, um, yeah, it's just very, it's, it's, I don't know. It's very interesting because, you know, Christina says to Ruby that she doesn't think that she cares about Emmett Till either. And mm. that to me always very much, um, always very much struck me because a lot of time, you know, I think, I don't know, I don't want to just put a blanket over how people feel or think, but I think right. sometimes when you experience this thing so much, you become numb to it. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you care, but on a micro level, you may just be so disconnected from it because you're, that's the only way you can protect yourself in your psyche. Um, and I know for me, even like this year, like I had to like, you know, just detach myself from everything. And there was a, a level of numbness where things that were happening were not affecting me as they did in the past, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just my way to just to protect myself because if I, <laughs> you know, Paid it like if I really watch the videos and watch the headlines, I will I will go crazy. I will go crazy. So, um, yeah, I don't know how someone could be in an interracial relationship and not discuss race, or how someone could be in a in a relationship and argue about race. I, mm-hmm. Neither one of those things to me works. So, right, um, and because that exchange, because I was sitting there thinking, okay, well, Ruby's got the upper hand, right? Because she's like. You know, I, I want you to, you know, to feel like what I'm feeling. I'm feeling the shame and, you know, all of this. Like, I should be with my people mourning, you know, with this innocent Black boy being murdered. And then Christina just shoots back. She was like, well, it kind of like what you said, where you don't care about him either. Because, and and Christina was right. Because if Ruby was feeling yeah. all of these things that she was saying, why did you go back to William's house after the funeral? She could have mm-hmm. easily mm-hmm. stayed with Letty. Um, she could have stayed, because uh, I remember she was um, taking care of Dee. She could have stayed at Dee's apartment. But no, you chose mm-hmm. to come back to the other side of town yes. uh, where you're protected by whiteness and privilege. So it's like, mm-hmm. how, how much, how bad do you really feel? I'm, I'm, I think on certain levels, I think Ruby does feel bad. But I think now to me, like some of the, because of the magic now that she has access to that white privilege, while she may not want to be white, um, which she says later on in a conversation with Letty, it's really about having those spaces, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And not having, and not having to experience um, that pain. And um, yeah, that was just, that was just really uh, fascinating to me. So we need to talk about these Jigabobo monsters. Cause girl, I could not sleep. I've been sleeping with like my door locked, my window closed, because that is 
that is some of the scariest ish that I've ever seen. Um, because I know when you watch like like if you watch like Korean horror or you know Japanese mm. horror like Ringu, like there's specific cultural monsters, right? That monsters that are specific to their culture and. Those Jigabobos were very, like, if you're talking about black horror, like, I was like, yup, right there, right? Because that mm-hmm. is sort of like about minstrel, uh, minstrelsy, right? And it was sort of like, it was kind of taking it and just turning it on its head and just yeah. making it monstrous. Like, what was, like, when you were writing that episode, like, how did you imagine them in your head? I, because, you know, in the book, he's the, the it's just a doll. There's no, like... It wasn't oh. like Topsy or anything like that. It was just a doll. Okay. Uh-huh. So, um, and I knew when, when I was crafting the episode, I was like, I want it to be like a, a pickaninny. That's what I mm. wanted. I wanted something like that. And mm. one of the other writers, he suggested, you know, Topsy from um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And when I saw the picture, I was like, yes, that's what I want. I want that's like, that's the vision that I see. And then the minstrel was just to add on to just the, the Jim Crow of it all, the, the, and how it's just, they see it as a game. Like this is a game and we're going to, you know, do this dance and just follow you. It's just, it was just very creepy. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wanted, I just wanted it to, you know, because, what Topsy and Bopsy really represent is how society breaks down black little girls and mm-hmm. creates black little girls with the idea of silencing them and making them hypersexual and gaslighting them. Like Diana's being gaslit the entire episode. No one else can see these monsters but her. Um, and so you make you think like you're crazy and then you become angry because you know you're not crazy. And then now you're like, you're the angry black woman. You know what I mean? So. Wow. It's like, yeah. it's like Topsy and Bopsy like represented what society does. It's like she, they're doing what they're designed to do. Like that's something that I, I wrote, you know, throughout the script with Topsy, like doing what they were designed to do. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what they're designed to do to us. Right. Yeah. That was terrifying. And then that, that song, cause I, I was watching the episode and, um, it was the song and they kept saying, um, let me in, let me in, stop that knocking on the door. And I was like, wait a minute, is this an actual song? And then I looked it up and it is, it's actually a minstrel song. I think it was like, mm. what was that from 18, the 1850s, the 1840s. And I was like, OMG. Okay. It's all coming together now. Okay. I see what, I see what they're doing with this episode. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. Um, and so something else that, that was really interesting was the storyline with um Atticus and his father Matros. We know that they've had mm-hmm. a very contentious relationship, and particularly with episode seven, where uh Atticus finds out that Matros is gay or or queer, Oof. and they are yeah, and they finally are able to have a conversation in this episode, uh, you know, where Tick is able to ask about his marriage to his mother. You know, um, I had always, I had always mm-hmm. suspected that the mother knew. I, I didn't feel like this was some down low closeted relationship. I had a feel like I, I was, I had a feeling that the mother knew. I, I feel because this is something, and I think this is what's interesting about the storyline is that it's sort of like this idea that women only agree to marry heterosexual men, right? But we are seeing that women marry all types of men, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. Like just just right now, the the whole thing that's happening with Andrew Gillum, right? Um, he had a he did an interview with uh, Tamron Hall, and the wife said that she knew that Andrew Gillum was bisexual. She was like, when we were dating, he had told me that already, and that's our business. That's you know what I mean. And I was like, and it just made me think of how many black women, like throughout the years or throughout the decades, have would agree to marry a man who may not be heterosexual. You know what I mean? Where it's just like we want to, we want to raise a family. Because I think Macho says something about um, he chose family over an asylum. Because we also find out yeah. the things that happened to gay people back then, like lobotomies. I was like, wow, I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was that bad. It was that bad. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I especially loved the. Easter egg that we saw in episode seven because when at the end when we saw um, Atticus jump out of the come back from the time portal we saw him with an actual copy of the book of Lovecraft Country mm-hmm. so I was just sort of like so in my head I'm like so is this going to be like the actual Lovecraft Country written by Matt Ruff but then we get this really cool twist where this version of Lovecraft Country is actually written, written by Atticus's son George Freeman um, mm-hmm. which was, which was interesting. So how did, what, did, what was your reaction when you found that out when you, when you were given that information? Um, I'm trying to think because we, we built everything together. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, this was two, two years ago. So you guys right. have me digging into the archives of my memory of the writer's right. room. Um, mm-hmm. I think what I loved about it was the twist of it, of how, because, you know, we, we changed things in Matt Russ book. Like, you know, we mm-hmm. made Christina, who was actually Caleb, um, Horace, we changed him to Diana. So there was characters that we switched around. Mm-hmm. So what I loved about this George Freeman book being written, it's like we, we reverted back to Matt's version of, Diana is a boy named Horace and Christina mm. is, a, is a guy. Like, I love how we just, we went back to the original way it was in the book, but it's, mm. it, it seems like an alternate, you know, reality universe. Um, so that was like my, like the, the thing I loved about it. I thought that was just so cool and so um, genius. Right. Writers to come up with. <laughs> yeah. Cause I was, I was telling my friend, cause I was like the, the, the great thing about Lovecraft Country is that, because of the story, and now that you've added the the um, the element of time travel, I was like, this show, like if it goes into like season three, four, five, it doesn't necessarily have to stay in 1955. This could be a generational show, you know, where you could show mm-hmm. the children and the grandchildren, the great grandchildren, right? Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then, um, <laughs> so this this scene with Christina. So we know that Christina and, and Ruby had this um argument so to speak where ruby was telling was basically imploring christina to have empathy like i I need you to feel what i'm feeling um and towards the end of the episode we see christina at the dock with these two strange men and they start wailing on her and just beating the crap out of her and at first i was like okay what's going on here and then that's when we see that she has paid these men to actually reenact the horror that happened to Emmett Till right down to the barbed wire, throwing her, you know, into the, into the water. Um, and I was like, I I felt like time just stopped. And I'm like, did I just see what I think I saw? (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. 
Um, and so what was, what was the conversation when you were writing that scene? Was there like, I don't know if we can go there, guys. Can we go here? Can we go there? Cause I've had Shannon Houston. Um, she's been, she was a guest on the show last week. And I remember her saying when I interviewed mm. her back in 2018, she was like, one of the things that she loved about writing, being in the writer's room of Lovecraft country is that she was like, we're going to be crossing a lot of lines and we're going to be making people a lot it won't just be white people we're going to make mad we're going to be making black people mad um Mm. so uh when you found out about that scene was was there a part of you that was like well i don't know if we can go there or how how can we go there listen i Mm. was (laughs) a lot of things (laughs) made me uncomfortable a lot of things made Mm -hmm. me uncomfortable and i was kind of like misha's gauge on where to go like if i was uncomfortable she was like oh yeah let's do it (laughs) and so i was like very very (laughs) even when i was writing the scene yeah i was Mm -hmm. it was a lot of stuff that she was saying i'd be like we can't i don't want i can't i won't write what and Mm -hmm. so um so writing that scene it was very um I remember Misha gave me the the choice. She was like, you know, you can have Christina react in any kind of way. She can be angry. She can be stoic. She can cry, whatever you want to choose. And I was like, okay, cool. And of course I chose her crying because it's like, I feel as though sometimes, you know, white people will dismiss what black people say or they're about it, their experience. Mm-hmm. But when you experience something yourself viscerally, it's kind of hard to deny it. It's kind of hard to say, oh, it's, it's whatever, you know? So mm-hmm. having us to, and the thing about it is we we wanted to, how can we show what happened to Emmett without it being on a black body? Ah, okay. And so to show it on a white woman and that a, it was a white woman who caused all of this to begin with, mm-hmm. um, it was a way for us to just, just to show the brutality of it, mm-hmm. but without it, be, without the the psychological trauma a black person would have experienced had we watched it on a black body. Right, right, and um, and you know the thing that I thought when I there were a couple of things that I was thinking about that scene. One, something that I was thinking about was how what you were saying about how there, we, we aren't believed, right? That when these things happen to us, that white people tend to be like, oh, it's too awful. Nobody could ever do that. But then I think about, you know, like Mike Brown and, um, you know, other black people who've been bru- bru- um, brutalized by the police, like Sandra Bland, that even when we have the footage and we put mm-hmm. it on social media and white people, they consume it, right? So then it's sort of like a consumption of black trauma, but then it's like, they're horrified, but then the next day it's like business as usual. So then yeah. my question, when I was watching that scene, I was like, okay, so now Christina has consumed that, right? In a way she's consumed that black trauma and pain that Emmett has experienced. The question is, is her character, this is a rhetorical question, but the question is, is it is that going to change her fundamentally as a white woman? Like, is, is that gonna make her outraged to, enact change is she is she going to join a civil rights organization and i you know my personal opinion is that no she's not because ultimately (laughs) because ultimately here's the thing and i think this is what made the the scene so brilliant she is still a white woman who is invulnerable 
right? Because all of that happened to her. She 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 experienced exactly what Emmett Till did. The difference is Emmett didn't come back. She came back, right? And so she was able to yeah. pull herself out of the water. So yeah. there's still that that white woman privilege, uh, you know, also compounded mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. that power that she has of invulnerability. So it's like, uh, I don't know how much she's going to change. <laughs> It'll be like, yeah, it was cool. I, you know, it was kind of like somebody said, they said it's um, like an amusement park of black trauma where white people buy tickets, you know, movies or whatever. They consume it. They're like, oh my God, it's awful. And they just walk away. And it's like, oh, okay. You know? Yeah. Everyday life, you mm-hmm. know, because we, like you said, we've seen, we're seeing the, the brutality being reported. And it's not just like, you know, we've seen Rod, Ronnie King and mm-hmm. what that did. We've seen the, the shooting of, you know, Philangelo Castro, like uh, Castillo, like we're seeing these people, we're seeing it and there still is no change. So I don't know. I, I think if history is Indian, 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 any indication, um, mm-hmm. then it will probably stay the same. Yeah, she's 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 such a she's such a fascinating character to me because I hate her, but I also I also kind of admire her at the same time <laughs> because she's she's like so audacious audacious enough where she's like I'm gonna stand up to this society that told me that I could not enter their ranks by the very virtue of me being born a woman, right? And so in a way, she's just kind of like found these ways to circumvent her limitations, but at the same time, it's like. She's very, like, she has her Karen way. She has a lot of Karen moments on this show. And I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> um, and, um, but then, and then the, also the, the conversation that she has when she meets um, Letty in church, uh, because they're trying to make a deal where Letty is like, okay, I'll give you the, the negatives of, you know, the pages of the book in exchange for you to make, um, Atticus invulnerable and in an interesting turn of events she makes Letty invulnerable Christina makes Letty invulnerable instead of uh Atticus why do you think that is what or what in your mind when you wrote that scene why do you think Christina's motivations were for that I think it's just this idea of stop centering everything on the men Mm -hmm. stop Ah. choosing the men Mm-hmm. choose yourself choose yourself you know because um, I think a lot of times especially as black women um, given the climate and the history of this country we we feel the need to protect and coddle our black men even at the detriment of ourselves just because of what we have witnessed you know this is all residue from slavery you know wit- mm-hmm. witnessing our, our strong black men being brutalized and killed Um and the host to strike fear among the rest, the rest of the slaves. So it's just like this idea of black women always having the the need to protect our our our, our men. Like the I, the fact that Letty didn't even think to protect herself, and she's pregnant. Mm. You know, she still chose the man to protect. Mm-hmm. So. I feel like, you know, and Christina said that to her in episode four, like men are, stop making men the center of the universe. Like they're not. And I think with Christina telling, giving her that option of choosing herself is, is, is giving, 
I feel like Christina is like about women empowerment to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause just because of what she's been, what she's been um, like sidelined from her, her rightful heir to the throne for so to speak, um, just because she's a woman. So mm-hmm. she's like a, a white feminist almost. And having yeah. Letty choose herself and her, she doesn't know, you know, that she's pregnant, but, um, mm-hmm. but to choose herself and not to choose the man, which I thought is just brilliant because a lot, I mean, I myself have mm-hmm. in the past chosen men or centered myself around men. Um, and that's not, that's not empowering at all. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, that's, that ties into episode seven. Um, when, you know, Hippolyta is having that conversation with Josephine Baker and she's just sort of like, I just, mm. I let society just tell me who I was, you know, I just being like this very polite Negro woman. And then even the scene where she finally confronts George, where she was just like, you know, I love you, but I like, I made myself small for you, you know, and you, and you let it happen. Um, Cause that was the conversation that I saw last week when the episode, and I, I'm sure that that will continue this week too, is this idea of how um, someone had tweeted this. I forgot what her name was, but she was like, it's, it's very interesting that when men meet us as, as black women, like they love this fire and passion inside of us. But then once they are in a relationship with us or they marry us, then all of a sudden it's like, they're just trying to, you know, put out the fire where it's just like, mm, no, you're, you're too loud. You're too ambitious. You're too, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I do love that at the too end strong. of the episode. Too strong. Before. Too strong. Oh, I've heard that. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I do love at the end of the episode yes. that we, we finally see Diana stand up for herself. Um, and she just busts into that, the cop's office and I was just like oh oh damn girl this is not gonna end well for you but she was just like um she spits on him she spits on him and she was like f you pig and I was like wow okay this yes. is I love that I love that I just love that she was just reclaiming and she was just like well you know what if those things are coming for me so be it you know what I mean um of course I thought I, I did think about the fact that mm-hmm, go ahead I'm sorry. Yeah, just just to piggyback off of what you're you're saying, mm-hmm. I think with with Diana, to a certain extent, she represents um, the youth organizers or the or the the you know the strength that comes the strength and the energy comes from the youth. Like just mm-hmm. with the recent like protests, like those were all young kids who were mm-hmm. um, fighting and protesting. It's the same thing with the civil rights movement. A lot of that was children you know a lot of children got arrested you know and put into you know paddy wagons and taken to jail because they were out protesting instead of going to school back in the civil rights movement so it's just the idea of like sometimes it's not the adults who who start the change but it's it's the kids it's the children who are fiery and passionate and um demand change you know mm-hmm. um but I love that scene. I love, I love him. I love her calling him a pig. I love all of them. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. And then that, that, that uh, when she walks, when she storms out of his office, that, that speech that we hear, I was like, wait a minute, who is that? And I, I was, I'm a nerd. And so I Googled it and I realized that it was Naomi Wadler. Uh, she was an 11 year old girl who spoke at the March of Our Lives rally um, and just gave this really beautiful impassioned speech about how black girls 
you know, how our lives are not respected and how, you know, sometimes we don't make the front, we don't make the 11 o'clock news. We're not on the front page when things happen to us, you know? Um, so yeah. Um, and so that final scene, uh, <laughs> when, uh, Atticus goes to try to save Letty because he knows that the cops are going to the house to try to find that Ori. And yeah. So then the cops are ready to shoot him. So I, we're ready. You know, it looks like almost like a reenactment of what, of things that we see every day. And then that's yeah. when, oh my God, that protection spell that we thought didn't work actually worked. And so now I call them beasties. So we realized that it did work. And now Atticus has his own beast, um, pretty yes. similar to the ones we saw in episode one and two. And I noticed that his beast is black. I found that very fascinating. It, it was in a, I mean, it's a terrifying looking monster, but the blackness actually gave it a kind of weird beauty in a way. Like, cause the other ones look yeah. more like, you know, pale and albino type, but his were was was dark. It was black, and I'm wondering. I, I had a friend who was kind of theorizing: is is it perhaps maybe the spirit of his ancestors? I'm like, I don't know. I I didn't read the book, but um, it it is interesting <laughs> that the that the that the beast is a different color than the one that Christina and the Braithwaites had before, um, which is interesting. And so yeah, so now. We have Letty who has the power of invulnerability. We have Atticus mm. who has this beastie, right? But then the question mm. is, what does Ruby have? Ruby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I mean, she still has her, her elixir. I think Ruby is just focused on learning magic so she can do what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. And taking magic and having it for her own her own sake and her own um, free will to do whatever the fuck she wants to do. Um, so I don't know. I I feel like hers is is she has a transformation. She's able to transform into this white woman and move through the world. Um, but it would be interesting to see um, because you know eight was was kind of like where all the secrets finally came out. Like for the last mm-hmm. seven episodes. Everybody had their own secrets. Montrose had a secret. You know, um, I just feel like eight is where every everybody were, is exposed, you know? Mm-hmm. And, right. and it's great to see. It's great to see because, you know, for the, most of the time, Ruby has been on the out of everything. She didn't mm-hmm. know anything, you know? And now she's the one with the most information. She knows everything about what Christina told her. She knows everything that Letty told her. So, you know, Ruby... You know, if anything, that would be her her secret power is that she has all the, the information from both sides. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and just kind of seeing what she's gonna do with that. I kind, I mean, I'm I'm kind of like, I'll be honest with you, I kind of want to see Ruby fuck some shit up. Like, I I kind of want to see her do some magic. Like, <laughs> what 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 would like what would that look like beyond just using the elixir? But like, if if Christina shows her mm-hmm. the arts of magic, like she promised, like. That would be a really interesting story art because something that I noticed in episode five and then I I, I saw that it was kind of um, reinforced in this episode was, you know, Letty being drawn, you know, deeper and deeper into this conspiracy and magic. She's sort of veering more towards like religious salvation, like when you see her in the church and she's praying 
she openly admitted she wasn't much for that when she was younger, mm-hmm. but now we see her leaning into that. Um, that's her way of coping. And then Ruby, on the other hand, is sort of like getting her power from the supernatural. So I find it interesting that these two sisters are finding like these different mm-hmm. paths in order to deal with this new world that they've that they've become a part of. So yeah, I, I kind of want to see Magic Ruby. I, I I would love to see that. <laughs> that would be cool. So. I love Ruby. Ruby's like my favorite. She's like one of my favorite characters. I love her so much. She's so yeah. great. Yeah. And the actress, Wimmy Masako, is just, she's just amazing. She's just amazing. I love mm-hmm. her. I, I forget that she's British sometimes. It's like, she is. Oh, yes. okay, okay, okay. Because her accent, her accent is great. Her accent, some British ac- actors, yes. you know, sometimes the accent will slip, but she is very committed to that character. And I, I mm-hmm. at least to my knowledge, I have not seen her slip in all eight episodes. So, all right. Well, Ihoma, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I, I, sure. I will be live tweeting. Um, will you be live tweeting when the episode? I will. Like, yep. I will be there. I don't know if I will be there after the episode is done. Cause I don't <laughs> want to read the tweet. <laughs> so <laughs> but I will be live tweeting at least for the, 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 you know, 9 PM show. And, and then I think I'm going to exit out. Oh, great. Great. <laughs> righty. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Spectrum Lounge. See you on the other side.